0: Last week we had a lot of discussion if you recall. We got a little heated in here as we discussed the subject of education. So here's our series. This is what we're doing. How to ruin your life by 40. This is the decisions you make in your 20s that affect the rest of your life. Let's take a quick look at our roadmap. We're kind of going through a couple things. Last week was about education and lifelong learning. Tonight we're covering career and money. We're not going to cover money a lot because we've covered money in very extensive series before. We're going to be talking a little bit more about career, trying to keep this practically oriented to things that matter to you. Okay? So, And then we're going to cover some stuff on marriage and ministry in the coming weeks. Why does this series matter to you? I've thrown this up on the screen. I change it a little bit each week to kind of get your mind focused on what we're doing. You know, about 25% of those people that are introduced to Jesus by the age of 20 are still going to be there at 29 worrying about anything that has to do with jesus 10 percent will make it to 40. last week we began to wrestle with this concept of freedom and you see that i've written up here god has given us great freedom to make choices but we have great responsibility and we have to make wise choices and finally i've kind of left this hanging for us the choices we make in our 20s will affect the rest of our lives Last week, the debate was so heated when we talked about education that I kind of felt like I just needed to come back and put a closing point on it. Somebody asked me afterwards, they came up and they go, were you going to really stop there in the discussion or did we just run out of time or what happened? Because it seemed like we kind of got to an end point and stopped. Yeah, there was about one or two more slides to go and I just decided to kind of hold them because I think people needed to pull back a little bit. Many of the people that made comments about education and its importance last week I felt we were starting to make comments that defended our own choices as opposed to making comments about what really might be wise and unwise. I don't think that I could tell you with any certainty to say the Lord wants you to pursue college education or the Lord doesn't. That's really up to you to make a choice. The point that we need to make though is that choices do have consequences. For example, you might say, college and education in a formal sense is not for me. I'm going on a different path. You're free to do that. Later on in life, you will continue to see the consequences of that choice, good or bad. But to say that there are no consequences misses the whole point because everything will have some consequence. It may be the best decision you ever made. It could be the worst decision you ever made, but it will have some impact. And that's why I say when we make these choices, we need to make them in wisdom, trying to decide. So rather than what I saw was starting to happen, everybody defending what they thought was the right thing for them to do, I want to kind of step outside of that today because today we're going to talk about career. And it could get equally heated if we don't for a moment stop and think, well, what's the point? Why are we doing this? So what's this graphic I have on the screen right here? Our guiding principle in this is kind of the parable of the talents. Because every one of us has been given a number of things, whether it's the place you live, the opportunities you have, maybe the parents that helped you grow up, whether they had money or didn't have money, your intelligence. I mean, there's, there's so many things I could list that are the talents that have been invested in you, your drive, your desire, your knowledge of the gospel, your knowledge of the Lord. All of these things are talents that you have and we're to be investing them. But here's the point that I think really has to underscore our entire discussion about everything, education, career, marriage, that the consequences do matter. See, right smack dab in the middle of the parable of talents, we have this little verse that comes up. And a lot of people miss it when they're reading the parable of talents because what they're doing is they're trying to get from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And they miss the transitional statement in the parable. If you don't know the parable, this is the one where the master gives each of his servants a different amount of money, different talent, number, and then he leaves. And then the transitional statement says this, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. You know, how often do we think of God as the God who comes to settle accounts with us? We think of God sometimes more in the idea of like God, salvation, God, give me direction, God and on my service to you, but we don't often think of God as the one who returns, as Jesus describes himself, as the one who comes to settle accounts. So I just want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. We've covered this parable over and over because I think it's one of the most beautiful and fruitful parables for us. When we, especially when we're talking about decision-making and investment of our talents, let's keep that in mind. This isn't really about what's the right thing, it's really about what's the wise thing. And how do we steward and invest the talents that we've been given so that when we meet our Lord and he does settle accounts with us, that we can actually say, look, Lord, this is what I did with everything you gave me. And if you're one of those people who last week think, okay, my, my decision was to go to school. Good. I hope that was the right decision. And I hope that what you produce with it is something when you come to settle accounts that you can actually present and say, this is what I was able to do with what I invested And if you're one of those people who decided that I don't want to go to school, good. I hope the same is true. The standard remains the same. You're still one of those people who will settle accounts and say, look, Lord, this is what I did with my life. So every decision has to be made in that context. All right. Enough from last week. Let's do a pop quiz. Which of the following things do you think God cares least about when it comes to career? Which one do you think he cares the least about? A, what career or profession you choose, B, how much money you make, C, whether or not you work to the best of your ability, D, the number of hours you work, or E, whether or not your job is vocational ministry or in the secular world. Which one do you think he cares the least about? Let's hear from you. A. You think he cares the least about which profession you choose? Absolutely. Okay, why?
1: Um, I just don't think God cares. I think you can choose whatever you want, and as long as you're somehow using that to work for God and being responsible with it and doing it to the best of
0: your ability and so on and so forth, blah, 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 I don't think he cares at all what you choose.
1: So if you were for Playboy, you think he's not going to care for that?
0: Okay, within moral, <laughs> the Christian moral context, like obviously like, dope <laughs> river, but... So we already have one qualification of that. Like within within his moral will... Okay, within his moral will, then you can do anything you want as long as you're not, what, like in a sinful profession or something that's yeah. like, outside of his moral will. Okay. Like selling drugs. All right. So that, you're going for A. Randy, you were saying that he cares which one? Uh, at least about how much money you make. He doesn't care about how much money you make. Okay. Give me a, any, any reason why he doesn't care? Because as long as you're serving him and all that, he'll take care of you. It doesn't matter how much money you make. Okay. Yeah, Andrew. I e, which is whether or not your job is vocational ministry or in the secular world. I think that he even wants
1: that, you know, like, he wants us to go where people don't know God, and, I mean, ministry, yeah, but, I mean, in the secular world, too.
0: Okay. Now, remember, this is an exam, so you have to pick the best answer, right? (laughs) Out of all the ones that look equally goofy, right? Okay, you've got to pick the best answer, so... All right, Ryan.
1: Is there a real answer to this, or are you just gonna go, God doesn't care? I just. A B or C, like I just wanna know. Are you gonna really give us a, a letter that's gonna be the answer? Are you, you gonna play the card that I think you're gonna play, which is, you
0: know what? Uh, somebody doesn't like the exercise.
1: Every time, it's like last week was the same thing. You here's
0: here's a C. Here's a serious answer. I will give you what I believe the answers might be, but I will tell you right now that I will not give you something with certainty because I'll never presume to tell you what God thinks, for sure, unless we have direct scriptural support. So we're going to come close, but I don't know that I can give you the exact answer and put myself in the mind of the Almighty himself. Another comment. Jason Craig. I would, when I look on it, I would say D. D? Yeah. D like dog. The number of hours you work. He didn't care about that.
1: Um, Because...
0: Sometimes it's not all about quantity but quality. Okay. Um but I do believe that he has given us certain talents and invested in us which should impact the career that we or the profession that we choose and that would impact how much money we make. And he doesn't want us to work to the best of our ability. Okay. Since, since it's an exam do not have to have an answer. Right, you've got so you got to, you're eliminating you're eliminating the people who don't. Okay. Anyone else wanna Philip.
1: Uh, well I think that God doesn't Care and that's how we use care about A, B, D, or E. C is C's the only one he cares about at all because how we talked about God's will that if C is the only one's in moral will because he like we should be doing our best. But like that if it's not within his moral will, then we at least discuss that Either it's we can't know what he wants us to do, or it doesn't really matter. He'll work without however way. So and C is the only one I can think of that's in moral will.
0: All right. Well, maybe C's the one that maybe he cares about the most. But which one do you think he cares about the least? So
1: I think all the rest he doesn't care about at all.
0: They're equally the least. Yes, equally. equally the least. Okay. All right.
1: I, I think he, he does care about the amount of hours that we're If we're eliminating, which we're not, you know, a self-admitted workaholic, you know, it takes away from your spiritual
0: life. Okay. So he does care. So pretty much, if I listen to all of you guys, I wouldn't know which one to pick at this point, right? Like, I mean, there's all the answers have kind of been eliminated. Anyone else want to throw a stab in here? All right, let me give you some thoughts on this. My sense is that the answer is probably A or E. They're close. Let me explain why, and then I'm gonna show you some scriptural support for some of these reasons and some attitudes about them. Let's go with why I think B, he does care about how much money you make. Well, first of all, it's directly the subject of the parable of the talents. Okay, the parable of the talents is not just about how you play the trumpet, as I've said many times, it really is about investing everything, including money. If you want to talk about our series about money and go check it out, you know, there's a million CDs on that. But we talked in that series over and over about there's 2,350 verses in the Bible about the use and the investment of money. God very much cares about money, including how much we make. Not for every single person, we're going to talk about that tonight too, but there is an attitude in the church that God doesn't care if I make money or not, and I think that's not biblical. He cares that we invest everything, including money, for his purposes. Not for our purposes, but for his purposes. So you might say, hey, I'm happy making this amount of money. If you had the ability to make more, God would want you to to make more within certain parameters we're going to talk about so that you can use that extra money for his purposes. So that's one of the reasons I think B, he does care about. Whether or not you work to the best of your ability, people have already pointed out it's a verse in the Bible. We will actually look at it tonight, so I'll leave it there. The number of hours you work. I think you're starting to feel that out a little bit. I think Dave's answer is pretty good. The number of hours you work could impact your relationship with God, but I also want to go back to what Jason Craig said. The number of hours you work sometimes in the church is used as a measure of how spiritual you are. You know, we're like, well, look how much I work or look how much I do. You ever walk around, I mean, our stated thing in society is busyness, right? It's, it's everywhere. I mean, people don't even ask you how you are anymore. They skip right over to, how you doing, you busy? Like, just get right to, are you busy? It's the next thing. I told you that I was going to try an experiment for two or three weeks that anybody who asked me if I was busy, I was just going to say, no, just to see what people would do. And every one of them were like, you serious? Like, there was like, did you have a secret that I don't have? I just tried it. I mean, I don't know if I'm busy or not, but everybody would say, hey, how you doing? You busy? I go, "Mm -mm. no, got nothing to do, really. What are you doing? And they just couldn't get over the idea that somebody was not saying they were busy. We're so proud of our busyness. Busy, busy, I'm so busy, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I know people who work like four or five hours a day, they're so busy, you know? (laughs) I mean, we've become like a society that measures one another's busyness, almost like height, like how busy are you, you know? So I don't want to come back to an attitude of the number of hours you work somehow makes you better, busier, more worthy in God's eyes, but the number of hours you work could interfere with your relationship. Whether your job is vocational ministry or in the secular world, you're going to see that's where we end tonight. That's why I think the answer may be A. Maybe he doesn't care so much about the profession. Maybe he doesn't care so much about whether you're in vocational ministry, meaning full-time ministry, or in the secular world. Well, let me show you why I think some of these things. Here's a timeline or a, like a balance line. I like using balance lines. You've heard me say before that like sometimes I think that in the extremes, people get extremely wrong about stuff. We get to be too extreme on one side or the other. So, here's one extreme that I see a lot of times when people are dealing with career. They're on this side. They're content with doing like the bare minimum in their career to get by. They're content finding the least easiest path that, of resistance to, to survival. And that's an extreme, I think. You think, well, I can just get by if I do the bare minimum, I don't really need a lot. And I don't want to confuse this with the discipline and the spiritual practice of simplicity. This is something different. This is where you know you could do more, but you don't want to do more. Where you know that you could contribute more, but you don't want to do anything else. Where you think, you know what, I'm content just getting by. And I think this attitude sometimes creeps into our churches unknowingly, and it it bothers me. This may be a hard word to hear, but I'm concerned about people in the church sometimes because we're going to be on either side of the extreme, as you'll see in a moment. We either have people who are just kind of getting by because they think that that's enough. And maybe the church inadvertently told them it was okay. Maybe the church said, hey, don't worry about it. As long as you're saved, who cares about anything else? Who cares about the quality of what you do with your life or what you end up doing or what you pursue or just, I mean, hey, the important thing is, you know, Jesus, that's all that matters. So do nothing else the rest of your life is what they hear knowing Jesus is enough. And by the way, it's enough for a lot of things. But even Jesus was very clear that once we began that relationship with him, there was more that we could be doing for the kingdom that was already going on on earth. I don't see anything in the gospel that says, hey, like once you're in a club in salvation, like relax, do nothing. You're on vacation (laughs) because the next life is coming and this one's going to burn. Just forget about it. I don't see that. I see just the opposite. So that's one extreme that worries me that we might be inadvertently communicating to people especially young people especially young people that we're communicating to so many of them like hey you're in the club don't worry about it. Maybe the model of our ministry does this. You ever been like in junior high and high school ministry like who's your youth pastor always like some surfer guy who hangs out at the church all day and takes you surfing and hangs out with you and like every kid in the youth group wants to be like them. Like, they want to have that life. Like, oh, he's so cool. I'm going to believe in Jesus and go to camp all the time and play my guitar and, like, go surfing. And, like, that's all you do, right? Like, this is the coolest thing. The highest form of ministry is youth ministry because you just hang out and play foosball, right? <laughs> I mean, is there any group in the world that could beat Christians at foosball? It's like, it's, in a, it's genetic. We can all do this, you know, like, we are like know how to do it, right? That concerns me because... God was looking for more industrial people than that. Look at these verses, for example. This is 2 Thessalonians. Paul writing, he says the following, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have a right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when... We were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle, they are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. Man, these are some pretty hard words from Paul to a bunch of people. He's writing to the church saying, hey, uh, listen up. When we were with you, we modeled this for you. We modeled for you how it was that we earned our own keep. How did Paul do that? What was Paul doing when he ministered to people? He was a tent maker. Yeah, he was a tent maker. It's a profession. Something to make money. Now, you could easily see Paul saying, I've got too much important work to do. I'm planting churches. I'm preaching all the time. I'm trying to establish this church and the doctrine that's in it. I should be supported by you. And he actually says that. He says that he could have been. He said we did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. He's preaching against that kind of idleness. Now, what's the use of working? Of course, he supports himself. He supports those that are with him. Here's another verse that goes with it. This is actually in the book of Acts, as Luke is writing, reporting about Paul and his missionary journeys. He's now on his way back, concluding his missionary journeys, and he's leaving the elders at Ephesus, where he's established the church. And he's giving kind of a farewell speech, and he reminds them again about work, and about his own work ethic and the importance of using money. Acts 20, 33 to 35, he says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Paul's industry and being a tent maker provided enough money not only for him to minister, but to provide for his whole ministry team so that they were not a burden on the people. In everything I did, he says, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul is giving us a clue. What is the reason for this hard work? Even though he has a chance to be supported fully. Not just a chance, by the way, maybe even a right to be supported. He prefers that he worked to provide for his entire ministry team. Why? He tells us, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. How is this hard work going to help the weak? Who's the weak? The poor. The poor. The crippled. The people who couldn't work. Paul is actually saying, if you have some ability to make an extra amount of money, if you can work harder to make a little bit more to give to people, follow my example. So that kind of answers one extreme of the debate about, yeah, but I'm good. I'm okay. I'm content just kind of skating by. I'm doing enough for me. Okay. What about enough for the others? Jeremy.
1: So what about all the offer- offering
0: we get to pay our pastor's salaries? You're on cue, man. Here's the question. There's some people in this room who might think about vocational ministry, so let's ask the question. Is Paul setting an example that should be followed, meaning that other ministers of the gospel should work to support their own ministries? Is Paul setting an example for bivocational ministry? Well, let me ask that. Of course he's setting an example for bivocational ministry, that's easy. Is he setting that example and expecting other ministers to follow it? Should we be saying to our pastors today, uh, maybe you should be working. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't be sitting in that church office all day long or whatever it is that you do sharpening the pencils when there's nobody around and everybody's at work. Maybe you need to be out there working, even at Starbucks, meeting the people, hanging out, making tents, you know, the modern day equivalent. Whatever that is, you know, building houses, whatever it is, so that we can all be helping to support the thing and using all that extra money for something else other than just all the salaries. Because you're right, Jeremy, a lot of our money, in fact, at most churches, about 95% of the money that you give to the churches goes to the building, the overhead, the maintenance, the facilities, pastor salaries, and housing. And we're not using much of that money to go anywhere else. So what do you guys think about that? I mean, is that what he's saying? Is he being authoritative and saying, this is what I think should be done?
1: Uh, when I read this passage, I think that maybe what Paul is trying to say is that we should, as ministers, we shouldn't just sit around and wait for support. This is the way I, I see it when I read it. You know, like, we, we can and we should help ourselves, in a sense. Okay. Philip? I would go even a little bit further, not necessarily just if the need arises, we should do it, like the minister should do it, but that if the ability to do it is there that I feel like Paul is saying if you're able to work then you should be working I mean he even says that like well if you're not working you don't need I mean it doesn't say like well except for pastors you know like
0: Morgan this
1: is good because uh, you know this is something I've been thinking a lot about and I'm not sure what I come to because I am studying to become a pastor <laughs> so I think this question has a specific relevance um, I don't know because yeah I mean there's a part of me that Really doesn't like the idea of only being a pastor, um, and I'm not sure because it's so ingrained in Western culture that that's you know that you're a full-time minister, and that as as we've said, Paul had the right to do that, and I think ministers do have the right to do that. Um, but I mean, like I've been in other cultures and other places where they're like, "Are you kidding me? Pastors don't work? Like that's crazy." But the bigger question is the ministry context of America. Um, Pastoring is so different in other places, I think, um, where, I mean, I just think there are a lot of, first of all, there are larger churches here. If you're a pastor with 4,000 people or 1,000 people in your church as opposed to 25, that's gonna provide a completely different context and how could you possibly be a good pastor you know, of 1,000 than 25? I mean, I could see someone who, who's shepherding 25 people, like work a job, take care of his 25 people, or her 25 people and, and do that effectively and, and, and in a good way. So I don't know. I just think it's really difficult. It's something I'm struggling with and
0: know a lot. About, so. Okay. But I would throw back. What if a thousand member church had like 25 pastors, but they all work part time? That's good too. Which you took <laughs> yeah. the salaries of a few people and just spread them out. You'd have more pastors instead of a burned out pastor Absolutely. who works all the time and is expecting to get paid at the same time. Yeah, Dave.
1: I'm going to piggyback off what he was saying. You know, like if you have a pastor of, say, you know, 10,000 member church he's not just a pastor he's also a director of public relations mm-hmm. director of marketing you know so he has all the all these other jobs he's not just writing sermons right. all day you know and I think that's where that's where your you know, kind of viewpoint comes in is that they're not just sitting you know writing their sermons they're right. out there meeting with all the guys they're meeting with their elder <coughs> board they're they're trying to figure out how to get their image of their church they really
0: okay Monique I just kind of
1: feel like we need to delegate more of the responsibility in churches instead of just giving control to one person, like this American ideal where there's like all this importance on like the one pastor or the lead pastor and I also think that like American Christianity, we're kind of like being spoon-fed and like we want to go to our pastor for everything. You can't expect one person to be totally responsible for the spirituality of like a thousand people. You know, like you're responsible for your own and like Get some cell groups, get plugged in into Bible studies, like delegate responsibility, you
0: know? Okay. Jackie? Well I think it really
1: depends on the function of the the church. It's like a, well the size and how the church members are and see because well when church is getting bigger and bigger, it's not just a church anymore, it's an organization. So like pastors are like hired to manage this organization and how can do that, it's it's more like a, a job, not like you're, you're just
0: ministry. Okay. Ryan?
1: Uh, I was just I was just talking to Dave I and was, I was saying, isn't there a verse that even Paul talks about, like if you do work at a church like you are worthy of your pay?
0: No, oh, we should come back to that in a second. That's good. Let's cite the Bible for a change. That's good. Any, anyone else want to jump in? Yeah, Jeremy.
1: Uh, looking at the numbers, right, that 25% of kids by 20 are Dropping out. Okay, is this overhead and this building and the staff that we are investing money into doing anything? I'm, I'm just looking at the numbers. Yeah.
0: Okay. Ben, do you have a comment?
1: Yeah. Um, is it possible for somebody to work, support themselves, and do the ministry? Because at least in
0: America, I and mean, enough money to support yourself is eighty or a forty-hour work week. It's a good point. I mean enough money to support yourself, right? But it's also possible, I agree with you by the way, for many people you'd have to work 40 hours and then you'd have to have, just to, just to be able to live. But I think that it, you could take into consideration that in some churches you could have the pastor work part-time to raise some of the funds and then have the church pay the rest of them is a, is a possible scenario. It doesn't have to be you know, one way or another. Here's my, my closing comment on this point. First, I think we are creating a little bit of a welfare state in Christianity. All right, where we got a lot of supported people who are fully supported, and maybe that's good and maybe that's not. I know a lot of pastors are overworked and burned out, but that's because the model is that they have to do everything, and maybe we need, like we've talked about, sharing some of that. It applies to short term missionaries as well. It seems like we're always eager to put on fundraisers, what I call Christian cookies and car washes. Like we're always willing to do things and get other people to give us their money. We're not willing to work harder to do it ourselves, you know, dig into our own pockets. Like, you know, sometimes you could sell, like, take you like five days to sell enough donuts to get somewhere. If you just worked harder at your job, you might get there faster. It's just an idea. Okay? We seem to be relying a lot on outside funding all the time for our mission. And I know that there's a growing, growing epidemic in America of pastors who don't understand the work world because they're not in the secular work world, and they're disconnecting with a lot of their congregations. And there's a lot of writing going on about that, about how pastors can't connect with their congregations because their congregations are spending nine-tenths of the week hanging out at work and in the work world and they come back on a Sunday morning to try to connect and they're in their different world. We're going to come back to that point a little bit too. So, let me answer the question about isn't there a verse? That's always a good thing to look at. There are some verses down here. I've listed them for you that actually do support the idea that ministers should be paid for their ministry. Luke 10:7, 1 Corinthians 9:11 and verse 18, Galatians 6:6 6, 6, and 1 Timothy 5: 17, and 18. If you read those on your own, you'll see that there's actually some of them saying that, I mean, that that right that Paul is referring to, that right to demand, actually applies in the Bible, where there's the instructions are given that, you know, you should be giving to the people who are teaching you. It's almost like an exchange. Like, they're taking the time to teach and instruct you. You should be meeting their needs in other ways. So I think there is biblical support for it, but I like the fact that we debate it a little bit because there might not be as much wisdom sometimes in it or at least we've created a culture in America that I don't think anybody had ever contemplated of having nothing but whole staffs of people who are paid full time to live in the church ivory towers you know, instead of the academic ivory towers and minister. Maybe that was never the idea. One more verse just to uh, nail home this point. In Colossians it says this whatever you do Work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So when we talked about, does He care about how you work or how hard you work in terms of or the quality of your work? Yes, it's a direct commandment. Colossians three twenty-three and twenty-four is saying the way that you work, you're supposed to be working, even though you work for men or women. That you really are supposed to be working as if you were working for the Lord. Give your best in all you do. So where does that bring us? Here's back to our timeline. We got some people that are way over here. We just talked about some verses. Those are the people who are content with just getting by. Some verses that say, rethink that. Then you got people on this side of the extreme. Those are the people who are completely consumed by what it is that they do. They're completely consumed by work and career goals, and they're consumed by financial reward. That's another extreme. I think it's equally dangerous. And by the way, I'm not going to launch into 200 verses on this because there are about 200 verses on this in the Bible. You know some of the ones about the dangers of chasing money, financial rewards, and making your life about those types of things. I'm actually going to only pick one verse. Because I think it says it all, and it's found in the parable of the sower. And it's a reminder to us that there are some people that could have been fruitful for the kingdom, but will not be because of this type of lifestyle. When Jesus was telling the parable of the sower, which I've excerpted here, he was saying this. This is Matthew 13. I'm going to read verses 3, 7, and 22. So I've really excerpted Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. Some of the seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And then he explains, what does it mean when the seed falls among the thorns and chokes out the plants? What does that represent in the parable of the sower? He says, the one who received the seed being the word of God that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. So maybe it does matter how much you work because if your life is comprised of working too hard, working too much, working too many hours, then you may be one of those people who was otherwise good seed, planted in pretty good soil, but the deceitfulness of wealth choked it out. The worries of this life choked you out, making you unfruitful and therefore not useful. Yeah.
1: Sounds like this is kind of, you know, if you take it back to what Paul was saying, it says, you know, in everything you do, work, you know, with all your heart at it. Right. Maybe to somebody else working hard and and long hours is working with all your heart, you know?
0: But for what reason? Like if you said to survive, I'll buy it. Because that's the best they can do, I'm kind of buying it. Depends. What are they giving up in exchange? If it's because they're pursuing advancement in this life, promotion, financial reward, the next bonus, the next high, the next accomplishment, if you become addicted to that, then I don't buy it at all. And the real issue, I think, comes back to in that middle place. Like, there are people who have to work so hard just to make it. I think I'm going to leave that aside because that's a different issue. There are people, though, who are working very hard, and you think, yes, they are following maybe that guidance that they should work hard, but what are they doing for Are they doing it because it's yielding that kind of reward, or is it for them? Because Paul was clear, when you work hard, he was talking about hopefully that's going to produce something that's going to protect the weak and provide for the weak. Any other comments on this before we move on? So here's the thing back again. You got the two extremes. Here's the one I'm looking for somewhere in the middle. There's got to be a balance. I've called it like a work ministry balance. Equally weighting calling and vocation. Somewhere in the middle where you take a little bit of both maybe not the slacker side if you want to call it that maybe not the workaholic side if you want to call it that cuz they're all equally misguided i think until you get to the middle where they're equally weighted you're taking the best of both this is a struggle that i walk through and that's why i can tell you that i almost ruined my life as i got close to 40 and this is why it means a lot to be able to talk about it because when I look at the church it's true that I see that we've done a disservice to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who are just hanging out and the church never speaks truth and love to them and says you got to get moving with your life because there's so much more you could be doing not just for you but for the kingdom and for everyone in it. But it also does a disservice to the people who are out there who are pursuing the ambitious dreams that this country puts up. I was one of those people who was pursuing it in every possible way, making lots of money and working lots of hours. When I look back at the amount of hours I used to work, it was not uncommon to put in 80 hours at work downtown. It was not uncommon to see like, you know, get there early in the morning and leave at 11 o'clock at night. But that's what was required to be in that kind of pressure atmosphere. Was that the right balance? Well, obviously I figured out it wasn't. What led me to go away from that? It was trying to find that balance that so many people are looking for, to say, wait a minute, I wanna be able to work and provide, not just for me, but for everything else that I care about, including the people in the kingdom that I'm supposed to be looking at. But I also need to free up time to be able to do the things that the Lord commands and it's hard. You guys have identified something already that yes for a lot of people it's very difficult to work a few less hours and still make enough to be able to support themselves but to some people they have that ability and that's one of the places where I think you should take advantage of it. See we often divide these two worlds. We think of like okay what do I do in my vocation and my job What do I do in terms of what I'm going to contribute to the kingdom? Call it your ministry. I'm going to tell you right now, they shouldn't be divided. Now, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, but I have to, I mean, even Paul, he was making tents. That wasn't his ministry. That's true. But it was so much a part of what he was doing. It was what fueled his ministry. I don't think Paul said, all right, I'm done with that talk. Let's go make some tents for a while and just forget this whole, like, church building thing for a while. Let's just escape, which is what we tend to do. We spend time together as a community of believers. We think about the things that are spiritual. And then we finish off tonight and tomorrow we go, all right, let's put that on hold for a while. Let's go back to work. And what I'm saying is we need to start fusing those two together in some way. Even if you're not able to do much ministry at work, it's still part and parcel with who you are in your spiritual sense. Oz Guinness wrote this in his book, The Call. It's subtitled, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. He's trying to understand what does this word calling mean? What is your job and your vacation supposed to be about? And he said that calling is defined as the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is lived out as a response to his summons and service. Everything. Everything. Including what you do for a living. For some of you, what you do for a living is very much aligned with what you want to be doing with your life. For other people it's the fuel that lets you do it. And that's the way it is for me. I mean I don't know that being a lawyer is my ministry. In fact I thought that for a while when I was younger in my career. I thought that being a lawyer was a way that as a Christian I could do good in the world. (laughs) And I would somehow battle it out in the courtroom or something and like Christianity would prevail or something. Or Maybe at the very least that I was somehow praying for my clients. They had like a secret weapon in their lawyer they didn't even know about because in the courtroom, like I was like, you know, like (laughs) like in Bewitched or something, I was like twinkling my nose and like miraculous Christian things were happening in the courtroom, you know. Or I was doing Jedi mind tricks in front of the jury, you know? I was like, my client is not guilty. They're like, I don't think he's guilty. I found out along the way that that wasn't what I had in my education or in my work. What I had was an opportunity that I needed to invest for the Lord. The opportunity was that I could work and use what I was doing as fuel for all the other ministry opportunities that were in front of me. Whether they were giving opportunities, whether they were doing opportunities, teaching opportunities, studying opportunities, whatever they were, even in writing and starting to critique some of the things that are going on, I realized that those skills and things that I had as a lawyer came in handy. It's putting them together so that one fuels the other. They're not separate. I don't just shut down on a Sunday night and go, all right, that's it. Everything we studied is done. We're out of here. And I go back and go, now I'm just going to be an attorney for a few days. Because it's still part and parcel to everything I am and everything I do calling, which many of us are always wondering, like, what's our call? And we even, during our, our discussions about the will of God, we're like, you know, maybe the, we, we abuse the word calling. One interesting thing that's pointed out about calling is really what we're called is to be a follower of Christ. Everyone has that same calling. Vocationally, that's really living out our personal gifts and ability in a way that God is glorified. And the most interesting thing about it that I found out is that there really isn't a difference between calling calling and vocation. In fact they both come from the same root words, just one is translated out of the Anglo-Saxon language and one comes from the Latin root. But they're really the same word. So a lot of times we have made this dichotomy between what I'm called to do and what I actually do vocationally. I don't think there should be any difference, any split, any dichotomy between what we're like, what we believe in our vocation, our ministry, and our work, the secular and the sacred. That's really the point. We tend to separate the secular and the sacred. I don't think we need to do that. In fact, we shouldn't do that. Not all of us will have the luxury of being in a vocational place where you're doing every day that which you believe. But that doesn't mean we should keep them separate. It doesn't mean we should think of them as two different things. And the challenge for me, somebody who spent all of my life working in what we would call the secular work world, has been to figure out how... Do I take what used to be a career, a profession, my identity, and squeeze it down into a job that makes money so that I can support family, ministry, and my life's goals for the Lord? How do I not let it consume me and become my identity and get so big again where I have to keep wrestling with it and making it smaller again? And just saying, no, that's what I do. That's what my job is. I'll do it well. I'll do it as if I was doing it for the Lord. But it's not going to be everything that I am and who I am. It's going to be the thing that gives me the ability to do what I'm called to do, which is to be a follower of Jesus Christ and invest everything I have, everything, every talent, every thought, every idea, and even my job to the glory of his kingdom. That's what I'm trying to do. Now, I know that's kind of theoretical. How do you do that practically? Every one of you is in a different place. Some of you are like, well, I'm already headed for vocational ministry. It'll be a little bit easier for me to marry the two, okay? Most of you are not. So I'm going to tell you that if you're in one of those places where you say, this is what I'm thinking about for my career or my job, or this is where I am right now, and this is where I'm transitioning to, if you want to spend time processing how do I turn that into something that's going to fuel everything else I do for the greater glory of the kingdom, let's talk about it. Because you're all in different places. And I don't want to generalize and say, my story should be your story, or that what I know is the only way that it's going to work. You're in different places, and God has given you different talents. Every one of us has different talents. So I want to just hear from you what those talents might be, and let's talk about it privately. Just say, this is what I am. This is where I believe I I could be. How do you see that working? And maybe I can just help illuminate that a little bit with you, either through prayer or just a little bit of wisdom of having walked through it. But what you decide to do and how you find your identity and work or not, or how you marry those two together will affect the rest of your life and your effectiveness for the kingdom. Because it'll either be the thing that obscures you, like it'll just eat up your time and your energy and will not let you minister, not let you be effective, will take over every part of you. Because in this country, if you see, the work week gets longer and longer and longer and longer. You know, we don't have a 40-hour work week anymore. The average American these days is working like more than 50 hours a week. And that's a reality. We have to do that. Maybe we have to live and eat. But the question is, how do you still integrate everything else so that they're not this separate thing that you have to come back to once in a while and realize that you're not involved in anything spiritual because all you've done is secular? Let's pray and wrap up for a moment. And over the next few weeks, if you want to discuss this further for your individual place, please let me know. I'd love to do that with you and process it. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the giver of all things. You are the one who gives us the talents we have to invest. You are not a master who who expects us to create our own talents or come up with our own talents. You actually have given us everything that we have because it all belongs to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have looked at each of us, known us completely, fully, and given each person in this room the talents that we need to make the investments that you require. You and your infinite wisdom have known what it is that we need and what it is that we're capable of doing. So, Lord, I pray for just the courage and the dedication to actually invest your talents fully. Give us wisdom in how to invest them so that when you come back, Lord, as the Lord who makes account with us for what you've given, we can report to you and show you evidence of all that we are able to do with what you've given us. In every decision, may we consider the investment of the talents you gave us